Good morning. Some of us here today are maybe rejoicing, singing, as you read in the epistle of James. And some of us are maybe mourning, maybe anxious beyond reason today. So our prayer, all of us, I hope today is that the Lord God of heaven will minister his heavenly word to us this morning. He'll feed us from his word through songs, prayers, through preaching, through speaking the word of Christ into each other's hearts. I hope that that will continue to happen as I I pray it's already happened so far this morning. The famous 19th century philosopher Soren Kierkegaard once said, No grand inquisitor has in readiness such terrible tortures as anxiety. Maybe this has become the norm for you in your own life. Maybe for you, anxiety is or has become a way of life. Worry, anxiety, undue care, something that is, that is future-oriented, not the kind of forethought and wisdom that goes into everyday life, that goes into preparing and uh, planning and thinking and providing and all of those things that we know are part and parcel of what it means to be rational human beings. Not that, but a kind of anxious, worrisome heart that does not trust God. So maybe this is you this morning. Maybe you're being tortured. The wonderful thing about coming at any topic like this in scripture is what we just sung. That though we look within our own hearts and our own lives and we see the sin sometimes just mounting up, massed up into a, into a huge pile. God's mercy is greater than our sin. God's mercy is greater than your sin. It's greater than your sin of anxiety and worry, greater than your sin of any kind. And so if you've come here this morning and you don't know the Lord, you're not a converted Christian. You do not have assurance that you belong to Christ and that Christ dwells in you. You need to hear this morning that God's mercy today is greater than your sin. Or you're here this morning, you're beat up. You're a Christian. And you've got some sin that's just massing up in your heart, in your life, and you feel trapped, you feel enslaved. You need to hear this morning that God's mercy is greater than that sin. We have been freed from sin. We are no longer slaves of sin. God's mercy is for all of us with regard to the issue of worry. So worry, anxiety, what do we do? With this torturous thing that oftentimes takes hold of our individual hearts. What do we do with it? Well, I think as Sinclair Ferguson says, the teaching in Matthew 6 verses 25 to 34 is calculated to act as an antidote to worry. So maybe for you this morning, in your anxiety, in your worrisome striving, you've looked to a number of places and you have not been able to find any peace whatsoever for your life or for your soul, for your heart. You don't have that. You don't have peace. You don't have joy. Jesus says, I have come that you might have peace. Maybe you don't have that. I think the answer clearly for us is to follow the teaching of the Lord Jesus. 
This is what we find in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34, the antidote to worry. We, some time ago, as I've mentioned before, we took some time to really camp out on Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 6, 4, which is a, a nice nutshell teaching in the Bible on the family. What, how is the family supposed to operate? What is a husband's responsibility, a wife's responsibility, parents and children? I mean, it goes across the whole spectrum of, of relationships within the family. And there I think we have, if we gather up all the teaching of Scripture, we have it kind of in a nutshell there. Or we could see it as an apex. And I think the same is true with regard to the topic of worry. The scriptures have much to say about worry, especially in the Psalms. We are told constantly to trust God, to rest in God. We call upon him to give rest and peace to our souls. But nowhere do we find such a a coherent and clear and, and even in some ways comprehensive treatment of this topic of worry. Nowhere more so than in Matthew chapter 6 verses 25 to 34. So let me go ahead and get you to turn there. 6.25 to 34. In our journey through the Sermon on the Mount, which is what we're doing, you'll see the posters and the slides here. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount for some time now, just after the first of the year. And in in this journey, we've now come to a consideration of our daily pursuits As a Christian, that is what Jesus is dealing with at this point. Jesus has told us to store up treasures, not on the earth, not to go about trying to mass up earthly uh, uh, things that we can acquire, earthly possessions or even earthly uh, achievements. Jesus has said, don't do that. Don't go about life storing up treasures on earth, but store up treasures in heaven. And he has told us to have generous hearts rather than stingy hearts. Do not have an evil eye. Evil eye being associated with an eye that does not look upon people with generosity. But looks upon things as something to be acquired. And people as something that's in the way of what we can acquire. Jesus says do not have an evil eye. Have a generous eye. Have a generous heart. And he has told us to serve God rather than money or possessions. That we are as Christians slaves of God, not slaves of things or slaves of possessions. That was chapter 6 verses 19 to 24. In other words, Jesus has put the spotlight on our ambitions, pursuits, and objectives in life. And to put it another way, he has put a spotlight on our attachment to the world and its things. Do not love the world. Or the things of the world. For if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. John says, the Apostle John in 1 John. Do not love the world. To go about acquiring all of these things. To go about storing up treasures on earth. And pushing aside people and seeing things. And serving possessions and things and dreams and pursuits of this life. Rather than God. Is to love the world. I wonder this morning, how many of us have deeply fallen into love of the world? We love its things. We love its praise. We love its values. We have become truly carnal. And it is out of this teaching about our pursuits, 
about our ambitions, our objectives, our pursuing and acquiring. It's out of this teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 that the topic of worry just kind of naturally flows right out of that. We saw that with that very first verse, verse 25. Therefore, you cannot be a slave of both God and money. Therefore, Jesus immediately goes from this teaching on our pursuing and acquiring and on how we set our hearts, whether on earth or in heaven. Immediately, he goes from that to talk about worry. So the sermon title for today is War Against Worry. Now, I'll say this. This is the second part of a sermon. So the the, the first part of this was last week. Today is part two of this sermon. So I would ask you to please go online if you haven't listened to that and go back and listen to that. There were some preliminary things that I said last week that I won't repeat today. But there are a number of considerations that you will find there. But today is the second part. And I think Jesus calls us to do at least seven things. If you go ahead and put that slide up for me, guys. At least seven things. The first three of these we covered last week. So Jesus throughout this passage, I'll say this briefly, by by putting up their war against worry. I'm not suggesting that it is about our war against worry. We do daily have a battle to fight against worry. We have a war against worry to fight. But what I think Jesus is doing in this passage is he is deconstructing any reasoning that would accompany worry. In other words, any, any thoughts or, or motivations that a person might have when, when they're worrying, Jesus is attacking that head on. He's waging war against worry, logically, spiritually, in every way. He is piling up the arguments against this very human activity of worry. And so the three things we looked at last week were Jesus says to observe the creation. He says, look out and see how God cares for the birds And how he cares for the flowers. And that leads to the second thing that he, I think, tells us to do. And that is compare the value. He says you are, as a disciple of Jesus, as a child of the Father, as an image-bearing child of God, you're greater than birds. You're greater than flowers. So compare the value of you, yourself, with these other things in creation that God cares for so faithfully and so diligently. So compare the value And then thirdly, last week, we saw recognize the futility. What does worry add to you? Nothing. You can look back in your life easily. You can do this very quickly. And you can think back to those times in life when you were most pinned in by worry. You're most trapped. You were most, we were talking about in our gospel community group. We were given some examples this past week. I hope that you guys really went into some specific details, but you can look back over your life and you can see instances where your life was just so choked by worry. And you can see very clearly and logically that the worry itself did absolutely nothing to make life better for you. It only choked you, weighed you down, strangled you. Made you ineffective and unable to live in the present. So Jesus says that worry doesn't add nothing to us. He wants us to recognize the futility of worry. And then the last four that we'll look at this morning are reject the world, trust the Father, prioritize the eternal, and await the provision. I think that Jesus here presents an incredibly multifaceted attack 
on our worry. So here's the desire this morning. I think for all of us as we come together to hear God's word. As I deliver this message from God's word. Is that we would really rethink our worrying. That we would consider these arguments of Jesus. That we would let Jesus' teaching here sink down deep. Even in today. I mean maybe you're, maybe you're sitting there right now. And you're worrying. You're not even listening. Like, maybe that's true. Right? We do that. You're worrying about something. Something you said. Something you did. Something someone else did. Something someone else said. You're worrying about your money. You're worrying about your possessions. You're worrying about your clothes. That you might or might not buy this week. I don't know. But we worry about so many things. Let's let the Lord Jesus rip it out today. As we come to his word again. Matthew chapter 6 verses 25 to 34. If you will please stand. For the reading of God's word. Verse 25. Therefore I tell you. Do not be anxious. Or worry. About your life. What you will eat. What you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour To his span of life. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you even Solomon. In all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field. Which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. Will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what what shall we eat or or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them all, need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You may be seated. One greater than Solomon speaks to us. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. Do you hear these these wise words from our Lord? Hear them freshly today. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Our Father in heaven, oh, if we would just meditate for just a moment on those words before we launch into all of our worrisome prayers even. Our Father in heaven, God Almighty, help us, Lord, to trust you. Help us to pursue you. Help us to see your glory and seek your kingdom. You will take care of us, Father. 
Show us that. Lord, we don't believe it so often. We say we do. We do at the core of who we are, but we don't live like we believe it. Father, even now, would you bring repentance and healing to our lives? We recognize that some of us have been worrying for a very long time, habitually. And Father, these are, these are chains that are tight. So Father, today we're just asking that you, by the power of your mighty Holy Spirit, will break these chains. In Jesus' name, we're asking for this. Father, we know that we are no longer under dominion, under the dominion of sin. Sin no longer has dominion over us, Paul says in Romans 6. Father, help us to believe that this morning, that there's nothing for those of us who are your children, nothing that can hold us under its thumb. Father, would you just liberate us today? I pray that our hearts will be attuned to your word and that we will listen and obey. And that as your spirit empowers us with fresh grace, even now to repent and to seek you freshly, that we will respond in obedience, that we will not quench the Holy Spirit, that we will not grieve the Holy Spirit, that we will not ignore his workings. But Father, that we will be obedient to what he says to us today. Father, all of us, help us. We greatly need to hear from you, from your word about this very pervasive issue of life. And so, Father, we come now by faith in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus' war against worry. Observe the creation. Compare the value. Recognize the futility. And the first thing we're going to look at this morning is reject the world. Look at verses 31 to 32 again with me, if you will. Verses 31 to 32. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. Let me just stop there. For the Gentiles seek after all these things. Eating, drinking. Wearing, Spurgeon calls these the world's trinity of cares. And that is the way Jesus presents it here. As Spurgeon suggests, the word Gentiles here really denotes the unbelieving world. The word Gentiles just means the peoples, the nations. It's a word that came out of the Hebrew people. They were the people of God. They were those who were entrusted, as Paul says in Romans 3, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were. The rest of the peoples were lost in their idolatry and sin. And they came to God through this nation of Israel. Israel was to be a light to the peoples. Remember when Jesus uh, whips uh, all of the, the money changers out of the temple. He says that my father's house is to be a house of prayer. It is to be a place where the Gentiles look upon, the nations, the peoples look upon and see that that is a special place where the one true living God is worshipped. So nations or peoples, i.e. Gentiles, became synonymous with pagans, heathens, unbelievers. From the Jewish mind, Gentiles were those who worshipped false gods. You have the image, of course, on Mount Carmel with Elijah. 
where all of the prophets, I believe there were 450 prophets of Baal there to make a sacrifice. And Elijah put them to the contest and, and they were to, to call upon their God. And we, those of you who have read the story know that these men, these prophets of Baal called out all day long to their God, to Baal. And he did not listen. Obviously, he's not real. But Elijah prayed a short and simple prayer to Yahweh. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of Israel. The real God who made heaven and earth. And then Elijah, well, Elijah first he poured water all over the altar. So that it would be no doubt in anyone's mind that God acted. No tricks. God showed up. Covered in water. God comes down with fire and destroys the entire altar. Even, the Bible says, licks up. The water. Those prophets of Baal were Gentile unbelievers. And Elijah, representing the God of Israel, pulled the people of God back to God. So Gentiles is a word that that denotes all of this. Unbelieving, pagan, heathen people. What is life about? Well, Jesus says, for the unbeliever, for the Gentile, for the heathen, for the pagan... Life is about answering these questions. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Now, what's very interesting about this is that it runs from the basic to the luxurious. Now, think about this. On the most basic level, the Gentile, the the unbelieving person is consumed with survival. I need to eat today. That's, that's, that's what I'm focusing on. That's what I'm living for. I, I, need, I need to drink. I need drink. I, I need to clothe myself and protect my, my body. It's survival. It's basic necessities. But see, here's the thing. No one graduates from this. It just becomes uh, more about comfort and more about luxuries. It goes from bare necessities to luxuries. You could say it this way. It goes from surviving all the way up to storing up. Which is why I think there's a lot of coherence between this passage or cohesion between this passage and the previous passage. It's not that on this level we have survival and on the previous level we have storing up. We have an entire spectrum of what Gentiles seek. Emperors and kings are storing still with regard to these concerns and questions. And the poorest of the poor are doing the same thing from surviving to storing up. These are the things that unbelievers run after. This this verb to seek after, it's a very strong verb. It means to be seriously interested in or have a strong desire for. It is the consuming force of that person's life. And Jesus is here giving a diagnosis of the unbelieving world. It's interesting. There are a few passages, we came up on one of these in Titus chapter 3, that really define the unbeliever. Kind of get at the heart of the unbeliever. What he's about, or she, what he or she is about, what he or she spends time doing and thinking about. What, what, what is, how do we characterize uh, those who do not believe, or all of us, before we came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? What characterized us? And this is one of those passages where it is boiled down to its essence. And what Jesus is saying that at the core, at the, the essence of the Gentile, unbelieving, pagan, heathen life is being consumed with these pursuits. 
This is what it means at the core to be unbelieving. And it is in the frustrated pursuit of these ends that there is much worry, much worry, much concern about the future, much anxiety. And here's the basic truth that I want you to notice at this point. He's talking about reject the world. Here's the basic thing that I want you to see. At the end of verse 30, Jesus says that that a worrying disciple is a person of little faith. Look at the end of verse 30. Notice what he says there. After he unpacks the fact that that God takes care of creation. And he, he wants them to compare the value. To recognize the futility. What does he say at the end of verse 30? Oh, you of little faith. What does this tell us? I think it tells us one important thing. And that is. And hear this. When a believer. A Christian. A follower of Jesus is worrying He is looking like and acting like an unbeliever. Do you want to know when you look most like an unbeliever? When you're worrying. Isn't that amazing? You see, we don't think that way. We've got the obvious set of sins that we tend to hold up as being depraved. This is depravity. This is debauchery. This is wickedness and evil. Look at it. It's not me. But we hold up all these things and we go on about such things as worrying. We go on about expressing this kind of unbelief. And somehow we don't think that this is all that bad. We don't think that this is all that sinful. What we need to see. And this is incredible. An incredible indictment of worry. Let it settle. Let it settle in your life and on your heart. When we do this, we look most like a pagan. Most like an unbelieving Gentile who has never heard of God. Do you see your worry with this level of seriousness? Or do you pet it and let it stay? When you worry, you are taking on the characteristics of a pagan who does not know God. And here's what we need to understand. When we were converted... We turned away from this. You know, if you were to put up on a board all of the things that we turned away from when we, were, when we became a Christian. You were going about life an unbeliever. And God graciously and mercifully reached down. He saved you. What is at the core of that transformation? I think what Jesus is telling us here is that that kind of life that he just described. Where we're pursuing what, what we need for our basic selves. Food and drink and clothing. And that's what life's about. And all the worries that accompany that we were transformed so that that then does not govern us direct us any longer that is what happened when you trusted the lord jesus christ and became a christian this is why john MacArthur describes worry in this way let this settle let me say this before i read this quote i read a book at a pretty anxious time in my life called Anxious for Nothing by John MacArthur. Had an incredible impact on me. In the very opening of the book, one of the things that struck me most was his flat-out, straightforward statement. Worry is sin. That was exactly what I needed to hear. 
And let me just challenge you with this. That is liberating. Because when we come face to face with the truth that worry is sin. Praise God we can repent of it. We can repent of sin. We put worry in a category sometimes that's, that, that j- lives in limbo. It just kind of dangles out here in the middle of nowhere. We don't deal with it as sin and so we therefore can't repent of it. You have to identify something as sin. Face it head on before you can turn away from it. And turn to the living God. And that's exactly what the Lord began to do in my heart. As I started to realize worry is sin. It must be expunged. So here's a quote from MacArthur, not from that book, but from his commentary on this passage. He says this, worry is not a trivial sin. So not only is it a sin, it's not a trivial one. Because it strikes a blow. Oh, people of God hear this. It strikes a blow both at God's love and at God's integrity. Worry declares our heavenly father to be untrustworthy in his word and his promises to avow belief in the inerrancy of scripture and in the next moment to express worry is to speak out of both sides of our mouths worry shows that we are mastered by our circumstances and by our own finite perspectives and understanding Rather than by God's word. And I love this final sentence. Because I think it is so true. Worry is therefore not only debilitating and destructive. We tend to camp out there. Because we're so subjective and selfish. What is worry doing to me? How is worry tearing up my life? How is worry affecting me? Yes. That's important. It's more than that. Worry is therefore not only debilitating and destructive, but maligns and impugns God. Now think about this. Let's go back. Let's just scroll back to the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. What is the first thing that we pray? Hallowed be your name. In other words, at the very beginning of our Christian lives, at the very beginning of our praying, our number one desire is that the attributes of God, hear this, the attributes of God, who he is, his essential character, be held up as great and lovely, and that God do that through our lives. Hallowed be your name through my conduct, we are saying. Hallowed be your name in every corner, every nook and cranny of the world, in every heart, in every mind, in every action. Hallowed be your name. May your name be treated as holy. When we worry, we spit in the face of that prayer request. We spit in the face of that petition. To worry is to do the opposite of hallowing the name of God. Because I repeat again, it says, as he says here, it maligns and impugns God. How many of us? Are trying to share our faith with people. Trying to tell them about our Lord Jesus. Trying to tell them about our Heavenly Father who cares for us. Trying to tell them about the God who did so much to take away our sins and secure our eternal destiny. And, and so much of what they see from our lives is worry. That's not a witness. That's a phony. That's a fake. And see the thing is. People who don't know the Lord. They see that. They don't want that kind of God. They want to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. 
1 Corinthians 15. They want to continue to live that form of life. Not a life in a God you can't even trust, Christian. You know him and you learn about him every week and every day. You read your Bible and you're around Christians. And you can't even trust that he's good, that he's wise, that he takes care of you, that he's a father to you, that he dealt with your sin. You can't even trust that. Why do I want your God? Why why should I worship that kind of God? It's logical even. There's a burden on us if we are to be witnesses for God to never worry. And that, I hope, is what the Lord Jesus begins to massage into our lives over these two sermons. And the difficulty is that this way of life, this idolatrous pursuing and worrisome unbelief, is everywhere we look. Here's here's why it's so hard for us as Christians. It is everywhere we look. It is all around us. It is the air we breathe. Wherever you go, whatever you watch, the people that you're around, all the spheres of life in which you find yourselves. Now Jesus has, has, has pulled back the veil and he has shown you the reason why it always, you feel so much pressure when you're out there in the world and you're around other people and you're taking in media of various sorts. There's so much pressure. Why? Because all around you, all around you is this pursuing. All around you is this desire. For food and drink and wearing and so forth. This idolatrous pursuing. You don't see it until this. Jesus pulls back the veil and he shows us. This is the air we breathe in our world today. I would say in particular ways the air we breathe in our culture. So to get back to our main point. As Christians. We must daily consciously reject the world. How much of that gets in us? We take it in, we take it in, we take it in, and we look just like the world and we don't even know it. We don't even know we we don't look like the world because we've got these sins that we don't do. I don't go there. I don't do that. I don't watch that. I don't say that. And as long as we got these things we don't do, we see ourselves as not worldly. But what Jesus is saying here is that when we're pursuing in this way and worrying in this way, we are ever much as, as worldly as we could ever be. All those pet sins aside. Also, I think we need to recognize the danger of world intake without Bible intake. Now hear this very carefully. We take in the world not even knowing it. So you can monitor kind of what you take in, the kind of media you take in, the kind of talking heads that you listen to, the kind of people that you let pour into your life and and kind of mentor you. You can kind of control those things, but you can't control the fact that daily we are being inundated with these worldly values and these worldly expressions. And so to even live one day in this world filled with this pursuing and worrisome spirit to live even one day in this world without taking in God's word is to be susceptible to this day in and day out. Does your Bible intake, does your truth of God intake match this world intake that's constantly present? The people you know, the places you go, the things we listen to and watch. Unless we see God's truth daily, we will fall into worry. And as we turn away from this Gentile-like unbelief, we turn towards God in faith. And that leads to our next point, trust 
the Father. Look at how Jesus finishes verse 32. Look at verse 32. For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. If you are a Christian... A disciple of Jesus, a child of the Heavenly Father, you are defined as a person of faith, a believing person. This is at the foundation and core of who you are. Once again, we're talking about the the defining characteristics here. What is the defining characteristic of a Christian? You take a Christian and you take a non-Christian and you compare them at the foundation of this person and at the core of who they are. They are a believer. They are one who has faith. We know that intuitively because we walk up, we talk to people and we say, we have a tendency to say, is so-and-so a believer? Oh, you want me to pray for that person who's in the hospital, who's going through that very difficult situation? Is he or she a believer? We, we ask those sorts of questions. It's the way that we speak. And rightfully so, it is at the core, at the essence of who we are. We see this all over the Bible. For by grace you have been saved through faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So we know, just from this sampling of verses, we know that faith is at the core of who we are as Christians. We enter by faith and we live by faith. Now think about that. We tend to to be pretty clear on the entering part. Right? As Christians, we tend to think, we we go back, we think about when we became a Christian. We entered by faith. We we put our faith in the Lord Jesus. We believed on the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. But the Bible teaches that we daily fight the fight of faith. We don't just enter through the gate and become, I'm a Christian now. I have faith. We daily wake up and we fight for our faith. We live by faith. As Jesus says here, we trust that God is fully aware of all our needs. And I think there are a few things to consider here when we think about our needs. We are to trust the Father with our needs, but I think there are a few things that maybe we don't consider, we don't think about enough. One of those is we may have needs that aren't really needs. So let's just think about that right now. Your life, you're worried about some stuff. You got some things going on. You're just thinking, how's this going to work out? How's that going to work out? It might be true. I recently saw a preview for a movie called Downsizing. Just recently. It's kind of funny. They turn into little people and all this. And there's, a, there's, there's this thing in our culture where everybody's about downsizing. I'm not just talking about downsizing in, in this general way. I'm talking about looking at your life and saying, uh, that I think is a need, not a need. That I think is a need, that I've been focusing on, I think I really need to do that or have that. No, that's not a need. That's not a need. And what will happen as we begin to look at our needs freshly, I think we'll realize that a lot of what we have characterized or defined as needs aren't at all needs. Also, we have supposed needs that are contrary to God's will. Maybe there are things that you're worried about. You're so consumed with them. And the problem is that that thing you think is a need that God should be providing for you is not his will. It's not his will that you have that. And that might even be perfect health. It might even be this level of energy during the day. It might even be whatever, fill in the blank. But that thing you think you need is not just something you don't need. It's not God's will for you to have that 
thing. And consider this. We may have greater needs in one area that restrain provision in another area. Consider that. I remember reading a testimony one time of, uh, of someone who mentioned that one of the things they had in their life, that, that they had criticism from this particular angle in their lives. And in retrospect, they realized that that was there to keep them humble. Or there is this particular struggle that you're having and in retrospect you look back and you see I needed that in order to have this. You see the the truth is we don't have the perspective to determine even our own needs. We don't have omniscience. We're not able to go in and see this need conflicts with this need. So God is going to meet this need here and he's still going to meet this need. But he's going to serve this need with this other. We don't even have that kind of wisdom. We just get frustrated with God. And shake our hands at heaven. And say, God, why aren't you doing this for me? Why aren't you doing that for me? And God in his omniscience and his omnipotence and his power is working so perfectly in our lives. Even in this broken world. So as to meet all of our needs. And to bring us to glory. And we're so frustrated. And so worried. So maybe we need to reassess our entire assortment of needs. As Paul says in Philippians 4.19, God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Take that promise and grab it and put it in your heart. Philippians 4.19, God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And Jesus is saying, it is the essence of a Christian A child of the father to trust all of this. So as those who have a heavenly father who cares for us, what is our pursuit or objective? And that brings us to number six, prioritize the eternal. So today so far we've looked at reject the world, trust the father. And now we see prioritize the eternal. Look at verse 33, chapter six, verse 33. But seek first... The kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Where the unbeliever orders his life around the questions, what to eat, what to drink, what to wear. The Christian orders his or her life around God's kingdom and righteousness. Everything is at the service of that. Imagine a circle in which God's kingdom and God's righteousness is at the center. And around that circle, you have all sorts of things. Job, retirement, kids, dot, 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 fill in the blank, etc., etc. Everything on that circle has an arrow pointing inward to God's kingdom and his Righteousness. What is God's kingdom and righteousness? I think this involves the advance of the gospel. We desire that the good news of Jesus Christ go forth. That's why we're called ambassadors. We are messengers of reconciliation. We are telling people, look, Christ has come. And Christ saves sinners. Be reconciled to God. Turn from sin and trust Christ. Let him graciously transform your heart. We are, we are those who are constantly speaking this truth and making this message known. That should be the heartbeat of our lives. I think we're so convicted here, I think, as Christians, that how, much, how little we care about lost souls sometimes. How little we care about people who are on their way truly to hell. And we care little for them. The advance of the gospel, the rule of Christ in individual hearts, that idols are toppled over. 
Imagine Jesus just slamming and smashing all of these idols in our lives and establishing himself on the throne of our hearts. This is what it means to put God's kingdom first, that Christ is supreme. Christ's glory is supreme. We behold the glory of Christ. We become more and more like him, that he is at the top and center of our lives, that we have purity of heart before God. We've looked at this in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Our deeds are done for the good of our neighbor, but not for man's praise. That we're always putting others above ourselves. We, we, we're not concerned only with our own interests, but with the interests of others. We consider other people more important than ourselves. How infrequently do we do that? We, we put other people down here and ourselves up here in all of our doing and speaking and planning. Jesus says that to pursue the kingdom and righteousness is to put other people's concerns above our own. But not to do this for their praise. Letting the character of Jesus shine through us. That's essentially what the Sermon on the Mount's about. Jesus holds up for us an impossible standard. But one that becomes possible through the Holy Spirit by God's grace. As he daily is, is more and more conforming us into the image of Christ. Whose character is displayed for us in these three chapters. And then there's that wonderful, wonderful verse from Romans fourteen seventeen: The kingdom of God. Is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Just meditate on that for a while. If you wrote down that other verse, Philippians 4, 19, write down this verse too. Romans 14, 17. Kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. This priority of the eternal, this focus on God's purposes in the world grows out of our gospel identity. I think what Jesus is saying in Matthew 6, verse 33, this verse that we many of us have memorized, many of us know, we've just heard it a lot. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. I think that Paul is essentially saying the same thing in Colossians chapter 3. He says this, If then, if then, you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds, set your minds this afternoon, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, Christian, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Then look to him. He's up there. Focus on him. Store up treasure there. Not here. I think Jesus and Paul are saying exactly the same thing in these two passages. So lose yourself. Lose yourself in these pursuits, Jesus says. And trust that your father, who knows and cares, will provide what you need as we finish up this morning let's go to our final point await the provision await the provision look at verse 34 as we finish therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself sufficient for the day is its own trouble i love this very practical verse 
When it comes to defining the anxiety or worry that Jesus is talking about when he introduces this section in verse 25, what is this worry? What is this anxiety? Let's get a little bit, wrap our minds around specifically what Jesus is talking about. And I think here he gives us a little bit more detail about what he's talking about. This tells us that worry is anticipatory in nature. Worry looks out on the horizon and sees this massive dark cloud and then begins to tremble in the present because of a hypothetical future dark cloud. It looks to what might happen with fear rather than faith. It skips over present reality. This is so sad. This is so sad. How much of our lives are wasted in worry. It skips over present reality to future possibilities. Let me say it this way. It overshadows what is real. What's real? Now. Now is real. It overshadows what is real with what is only imaginary. It may or may not happen. How many times have we looked out into the future and have we seen a dark cloud? It never happened. It was never there. So often we look out into the future and we skip over the present. Let me ask you about this with your children. I think for parents, this is, this is important for us to think about this. How much of our children's lives, our interactions with our kids, our moments to get into their hearts, wasted. Wasted. Because we're worrying about our money, our jobs, this thing we're going to do later on today. This possible health issue down the road, how we're going to make it a week from now or whatever. We're just worrying and worrying and worrying. Oh, that day's gone. That moment's gone. That decade is gone. I think as parents, this should hit us hard to say no more of that. I turn from that. I repent of that. I'm not going to sit and spend my time with my kids worrying, mulling, mulling over things in my mind. Fathers, we may come home in the evening and be there, a physical flesh and blood human being, but not there at all mentally. Just churning and churning and churning. And next thing you know, the kids are in bed and you're waking up the next day and you're going about it all over again. And your marriage crumbles and you have no relationship with your kids. Hear this. Don't worry about what may be. Focus on what is. Proverbs 27.1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Flip that around. Don't boast about tomorrow. You don't know what may bring. And don't freak out about tomorrow, because you don't know what it may bring. Jesus says that today's troubles are enough for today. One commentator has reflected, No man ever sank under the burden of the day. It is when tomorrow's burden is added to the burden of today that the weight is more than a man can bear. How many people, how many of us walking around with a ton of tomorrow's burdens? Not even real. What a waste of life. What a waste of kingdom life. Blood bought life. We will have trouble in this life, it is true. Jesus says. The day has its trouble. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus does not promise us a trouble-free life in any way, shape, or form. We live in a broken world, and we are followers of the suffering servant. The Lord Jesus Christ who went to the cross, pick up your cross daily and follow me, Jesus says. We will suffer with Christ. 
Psalm 34, 19 says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. That doesn't sound very comforting. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. That is the truth of God. We have nothing to worry about. Nothing. Come what may be tomorrow. We have no fear for the Lord will deliver us out of them all. God's grace is for today. Lamentations 3, 22 to 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And we've, we've heard this before. Some of us, most of us maybe. His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You know, it's amazing to think that all we have to do. Listen, this is incredible. This is incredible life vision. All we have to do is wake up every day and trust ourselves into the hands of our loving and omnipotent father and live for him, live for his glory every single day. And you go to bed at night and you get up the next day, you do it to go all over again. And you do that day in, day out until you die and you go to be with him. Every day is a new day in which God lavishes us with precisely according to his wisdom what we need so what are we to do pour ourselves out for the glory of god and the good of our neighbor and pray every day abba give us this day our daily bread let's pray Our Father in heaven, Lord, we we greatly need your help that we might glorify you, that we might advance the cause of the gospel of the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ, that we might live unto him daily, that we might trust you. For today's provisions. And await your provisions for tomorrow. Father help us. Help us to look to you. To be consumed with your work. To love your kingdom. To love your righteousness. To be pure in heart by the Holy Spirit. May righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit be our earnest pursuit, our ambition, the ambition of our lives from now until our heart ceases to beat. Father, help us. We need your grace even now by your word and through your word. Would you transform? Would you create? Would you do what you did even at the beginning when you said, let there be light? And there was light. Speak now, O God, into every heart and say, let there be light. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
At this time in our service, we'll have our Lord's Supper. This is a very special time for us as a church. We do it every week. If you're going to be serving, you go ahead and come forward. Uh, this is an opportunity in our, co- in our corporate life as a church to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus. That his, he died on the cross for us. He gave his body and his blood for us. So this is something that we do in remembrance of him. That we come to this and we are conscious of the fact that Jesus died for our sins and his blood covers us. So let me just ask this this morning. The the Bible is very clear that we should examine ourselves before we come to this. That this is for Christians. This is for those who, who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and who live unto him. Those who are slaves of God and no longer slaves of sin and slaves of self. So if you're a visitor here with us this morning or you are not a converted Christian, we would ask that you pass over this time. We welcome you. We're glad you're here. But this is truly for Christians, not a ceremony, not an empty thing we do. We are confessing our belief in this gospel when we do this. And we're confessing it to one another as we see each other move about this room. So would you come when you're ready?